are new or just have yet to begun to be connected to the church, are usually posted right by the back door there. Make a point to say hello if we haven't already and introduce yourself to me. This morning, we're going to be continuing our way through the Gospel of Mark. So if you haven't already, would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 12? We'll be considering this morning verses 13 through 34. Mark chapter 12, beginning our reading in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they, are, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as far the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to them saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up to him and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Would you pray with me? We've heard God's word. Let's ask that he would help us by being faithful to his promise to send us his spirit to aid us as we hear his word. 
Father, we look to you this morning so thankful to begin a new week. The resounding voices of praise and adoration of your worth and who you are, mindful of your character, your faithful promises. The reminder of mercy, the reminder of forgiveness, the announcement of your goodness towards us and the sending of your Son. Lord, how much we need the truth of your word to shape our lives how much we need the truth of your word to shape the entirety of who we are. Lord, even in our familiarity with this very passage, even reading through it, we're mindful and we acknowledge that our knowledge, even up to this point, is insufficient. And were we to have all the knowledge for all eternity apart from the work of your spirit, it would be insufficient. So Lord, add this morning to what we have. By the ministry of your word and the ministry of your spirit, would you come and would you illuminate our lives by the truth of your word? Would you conform our wills to love what you love? Would you direct our steps to walk in the ways that honor you? And would you help us as your people to be conformed to your image that we as your people, as your church, might bring you much glory? And for those, Lord, who are here amongst us, that do not know the goodness of what it means to be found in trusting and resting in your goodness. Lord, we pray and we ask that through the same word and through the same ministry of the same spirit, that you would bring saving faith, that you would bring, even as we've considered last week, light to our darkness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we make our way through Mark's gospel, it's good from time to time to step back and essentially survey the larger plot in order that we might recognize the particular setting of the various events that are here in front of us. Remember that Mark has begun this writing with an announcement. It's an announcement of good news that goes back to the very first verse of the very first chapter. This good news is that specifically Jesus Christ is the promised Son of God sent by God to deliver his people. And what Mark begins to write from that first verse is to testify of the authority that this Jesus has, to speak of his authority to forgive sins, his authority over the demonic world, his authority even over the religious traditions and the authority that is present on earth, that Jesus has rightful authority alone by the very fact that he is the Son of God. And then Mark goes on, to testify and to show that this very authority is tested, that it is opposed, that it is rejected, that it is scrutinized, and that there are even some who are seeking to plot to destroy this Son of God, Deliverer, God-sent Messiah, looking to trap Him and test Him. And it's important to remember that as we read the three encounters that are before us this morning, that these questions take place within the plot line of testing. Testing to the point of seeking to find fault. Testing, as Mark says, to trap Jesus. Each of the three stories given to us here are set within this backdrop of the religious leader's desire to destroy Jesus. In Mark eleven twenty seven, the chief priests and the scribes question Jesus specifically on his authority. In Mark chapter 12, The verse just before we began reading in verse 12. These same religious leaders are seeking to arrest Jesus. And it's in the context of those desires to arrest and to destroy that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then a scribe 
come to Jesus, each asking specific questions, each referring to him as teacher, each asking questions about the law, and each seeking to poke at the reality of the authority and his knowledge of who he is. The significance of this testing, it's actually further clarified when we remember the context of Jesus' repeated predictions of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Mark is writing to show us that this testing, it's actually serving the greater narrative, the greater plot of this gospel of who Jesus is must be clarified by this testing of who he is. And what's the narrative that keeps unfolding? Well, it's Mark chapter 10, the third and most explicit passion prediction where Jesus says in verse 33, see, we're going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I bring that up because the impending death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it is the controlling image and the event that marks the whole purpose of this narrative. The question that must be at the top of our minds in hearing that is, for what reason? If this Christ has been sent to rescue and this Christ must suffer and die, then we should be asking why? Why is that the logic? Why is that the story that God has chosen to tell? Well, the larger storyline of scripture helps us answer those very questions. A sacrifice must be made. That has been a recurring theme since the first pages of written scripture. And the sacrifice must be without blemish. The sacrifice that atones for sin must be a perfect sacrifice. It must be an innocent sacrifice. And if this Jesus sent by God to rescue God's people from the deliverance that they need, he too must be a perfect sacrifice. He must be tested and examined and proven to be without blemish. Because if he has the rightful authority, then that means he should also have sinless perfection. And if that is true, then his death is not just any death. His death then is worth infinite significance because he then is able to do what he says. Son, your sins are forgiven. He's actually able to accomplish that by the very nature of who he is. And for our context this morning, if that is true, then his demands for our obedience and our glad submission are perfectly reasonable on the basis of who he is. I lay all of this out with some emphasis because the testing and the questioning of Jesus should be of utmost importance for Christian and non-Christian alike. Because underneath this question of testing, is Jesus worthy? Is he really the sacrifice and the substitute that God sent? Is he the legitimate one? Underneath that question is a greater question, which says, am I then giving what is owed to him? What is my life in relationship to his life? Is he worthy? If he's proven to be worthy, is he worthy of my trust? Is he worthy of my worship? Let's attempt to answer those questions by looking at the various 
questions that are brought before Jesus within this section of Scripture. What's the first question? Well, essentially, the first question, the hand goes up and says, Jesus, can we talk about the government's authority? Like we've never heard this one before. What is the government's authority? Look back at verse 13, how this sets up. They sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Remember the context here, it's even explicit in verse 12, is that of trapping Jesus. This is a group of religious leaders who are asking a question, but they're asking in a disingenuous way. The hope here, it's pretty apparent, is to discredit Jesus. By his answer, defied his followers and expose him as a false teacher. The context here has to do with the authority of the civil government. And can I just say, it is good to know that 2020 wasn't the first time that this matter of the government's authority was a hot topic. There's nothing new under the sun, friends. Hoping to trap Jesus, they ask him a yes-no question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, yes or no? And they put the microphone in his face. Now, the trap that, or the, 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 the trap that they're asking and the tax that they're referring to It's essentially a poll tax related to a census. If you live in a certain region, you must pay a certain amount. It was instituted in AD 6, and it was the required payment of one denarius, which was approximately the average wage of a day's work. It was a silver coin. It bore the image of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. If you flipped it over on the back, It was the image of Tiberius' mother, nice homage, and the inscription, High Priest. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, my mom, the High Priest. Now the question posed to Jesus is of course asked in such a way to force Jesus to compromise, isn't it? Support for the payment of the Roman tax will discredit him in much of the eyes of the Jewish people. But his refusal to pay labels him an insurrectionist and a zealot and will bring the hammer of Roman authority upon him. So wisely, Jesus refuses to be backed into either position. He knows the hypocrisy of the angle that they're taking and resting in his own authority, he questions their question in return and says, whose likeness, whose image is on this coin that we're talking about? And you can just imagine everyone's heads looking down, knowing full well what they're going to see, and answering Caesar. Now the question of who is owed what, the tact that Jesus takes. Who's owed what here? That's the question. And the tact that Jesus takes is of utmost importance. He responds with this logic. What bears Caesar's image? Give to Caesar. But before I go, and what bears God's image, give to God. That is the, the parallel lines of thought in the way that Jesus responds. Notice what Jesus does here brilliantly. His reply 
affirms the legitimacy of human government, and he distances himself from political anarchy and all of the zealots. And at the same time, he says that, look, duties towards God and government, they're not completely separate, but they are actually united and ruled by the same supreme authority. No doubt a portion in our Bibles that probably got some traction in the past couple of years was Romans 13. As Paul unpacks this very truth, recognizing that all authority is from God. And if we're going to talk about authority, we need to talk about the one who's in ultimate authority that puts all authority in place, and that authority is ultimately accountable to God. Jesus says, essentially, look, let Caesar have his little coin. It has his likeness stamped right on it. Let him have it. But by the way, whatever has God's likeness stamped upon it, that belongs to God too. Does this language sound familiar to you? Image and likeness? Do you think Jesus was intending to communicate something here more than just silver coins and which bucket they belong in? This language, image and likeness, it's the very same language we read of in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Whatever bears Caesar's image, let him have it. But whatever bears God's image or likeness belongs to God. Meaning, Pharisees, Herodians, you're asking the wrong question you have a much bigger issue than dividing up silver coins. To whom do you belong? And will you pay? That is the implication of Christ's question to their question. Who do you belong to? And will you pay what is owed? Friend, if you've never connected these dots, please hear the teaching of Scripture. You have been created by God for His purposes to reflect His glory. Every single person in this room falls under that description. You've been created by God to reflect his image for his glory. You have breath in your lungs. You have neurons firing in your brain. You have muscles that move your body so that you can reflect God's image in all that you do and bring him glory. And the greatest tragedy of your life and the ultimate judgment that you will face is a refusal to acknowledge this truth. At the same time, the reverse is equally true. The greatest contentment that you could ever know and the greatest satisfaction that you could ever discover comes in finding that you were created for God's good glory. Both are equally true. God set his stamp upon you and said, mine for my purposes. That's God's doing. And a Christian is one who sees this and says to God, my life is yours. Restore this image that's been broken by sin, conform it to the image of your son so that you might be glorified. That is the difference between a Christian who acknowledges this truth and is dependent upon God for its outworking, and one who refuses to acknowledge that very reality. So I would ask you, would you please consider, if this is completely new to you, 
or something that even sounds curious to you, would you please consider this and even ask a Christian in your life that you know, what might it look like for my life to bring glory to God? What does that mean? Ask somebody, and I would love to hear how it's answered, because that's a wonderful conversation. It begins with agreeing with God that your life belongs to him, and then repenting of your refusal to do so, and believing in his son that he is sufficient to cover your sin and complete the good work that he begins in his people. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Well, if questions about the role of civil government don't trap Jesus, how about eschatology? (laughs) Let's talk about the resurrection. This is right out of the playbook of all the crazy questions you could be asked. What's the role of the civil government? Can we talk about eschatology for a minute? And here comes the next question, verse 18, a question about the resurrection. The second question in the second test comes from the lips of the Sadducees in verse 18. Who said to him, and Mark notes, who say that there is no resurrection? This is important because it's the premise for the entire scenario that they set up and the question that they posed to Jesus. The Sadducees were another religious body alongside the Pharisees, but differing greatly from the Pharisees in what they actually believed. The Sadducees considered the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, to be the only authoritative teaching of God. So they only looked to the first five books of Scripture. They denied the existence of angels and demons. They denied the possibility of miracles. They denied the resurrection and taught that the soul perishes along with the body at death. And so what do they do? They seek to discredit Jesus by bringing up in their minds the ultimate gotcha question. A question that they believe exposes the lunacy of the resurrection. They point to the law, what is known as the Leverite marriage, where a brother is obligated to marry the widowed spouse of his brother. And in this scenario that they paint, Seven brothers end up marrying the same woman because of the same teaching, which in their minds is the nail in the coffin to the doctrine of the resurrection as they ask, and whose wife will she be in the resurrection? You just imagine their glee as they painted in their minds this perfect scenario to trap Jesus, showing that what he teaches is not credible at all and is not at all worth following, seeking to expose him as a fraud. Jesus takes the mic, as it were, steps to the podium, and says, you are wrong. You do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. He says this to the Sadducees, who prided themselves on their knowledge, and their holding to the Torah. In other words, what Jesus does here is he refuses to accept their premise. You're wrong on two accounts, he says. You are wrong on the manner of the resurrection and the very fact of the resurrection. What does he mean? Well, the manner of the resurrection, you are reasoning from earthly realities up to heavenly realities. You are assuming that the way life works here is 
going to be the way that life works there. You're reasoning foolishly and wrongly. You're trying to imagine what the resurrection will be like using a human and an earthly paradigm. It isn't like that at all. And then he says, you're wrong in regards to the fact of the resurrection. You've actually overlooked the scriptures teaching the powerful testimony that's contained within them. Now, it's significant that Jesus, of all the places he could have gone, he goes to Exodus. Remember, this is one of the five books, the only five books, that they hold as authoritative. Jesus could have gone any number of places to talk about the resurrection, but in a sense, he gives them home court advantage and says, let's go to Exodus. For instance, the burning bush passage, a very passage that you know. And if you would agree with me, you would say that's authoritative. Yes, okay, well, let's look at what it says. He's brilliant in what he does. It's there in Exodus 3 that God reveals himself to Moses, not as the God of the dead, but the God of the living. The concept of the God of the dead exposes the real contradiction of the Sadducees who insist upon death, extinction, upon breathing our last breath. Here's what Jesus is getting at. If God assumed the task of guarding and keeping Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob like he has contained within the very scriptures you hold to, I will be your God you will be my people. If God has promised to guard his people during the course of their earthly life, but he fails to deliver them from their great enemy, death, then God is not faithful to his promise. He's broken his covenant. If the death of the patriarchs is their final word in history, then God has not been faithful to his covenant. Is he the God of the dead? Or is he not the God of the living? Essentially, what he says to these Sadducees is that you assume there is no resurrection because you insist upon total extinction, upon death, but you are wrong about the resurrection because you are wrong in your understanding of Scripture and the very power of God. Instead of Jesus being exposed here as the one who holds to this ridiculous, improbable doctrine of the resurrection, he exposes the Sadducees as the ones holding to a ridiculously inconsistent doctrine. Why worship a God who fails to keep his people at death? You don't even know the power of God, nor the scriptures which proclaim it. The resurrection, friends, is not a fanciful full part of the story that we try and cover up. It's the lead. It's the very thing that we rejoice in. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, Paul says, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is of first importance. If you do not see this, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. And Paul goes on with the same reasoning in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to being misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ and whom he did not raise, if that is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Sadducee, we are of all people most to be pitied. But the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The resurrection is the power of God. The resurrection is the testimony of the power of God central to the good news of the gospel. The soul is eternal. And the soul that is united to Christ faces the pangs of death head on. Full force. Because of the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, we know the scriptures and the power of God. Test number two, past. What else could come Jesus' way? They brought God versus the government. Some eschatology questions. There's one more. What I'm calling, what's the meaning of life? If it doesn't go... Any more complicated, let's go here. Here's why I say this. Look back at verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The final question is asked by a scribe, and it's a question essentially of distinction. In Jewish teaching, it was often taught that there's 613 total commandments. 365 negative, 248 positive. So you can understand the reason for the question. (laughs) Of all the commandments, is there any that's most important? Anything that rises to the top? Anything of distinction that you could sum all of this up, Jesus? The sense of the question is not simply what is the most important as far as ranking. Like 1 to 12, just give me the first... It's more in the sense of what supersedes everything. What is it that sums up and points to the great purpose of it all? And that's why I'm saying, Jesus, what's the meaning of life? What is all this about? What is the most important thing? And in response, Jesus goes two places. Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. The passage in Deuteronomy 6 is known as the Shema, just simply meaning to hear. And it was recited every morning and every evening by faithful worshipers. It was a creedal summary of God's being and man's responsibility. Each morning and each evening, reminding myself 
the Lord our God is one. I shall love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. The Lord our God is one. I'm to love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. And then Jesus bookends this with Leviticus 19.5, citing the command to love your neighbor. Love God with your all. Love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus does here is he points to the unity and the, the order of something very essential. Unity in the sense of love of God being united to love of neighbor. Not distinct, but he marries them. One commentator said, Jesus avoids the danger of mysticism, which results in a detached and disembodied love for God, as well as the danger of humanism, which acts towards humanity without reference to God. And unfortunately, most often, isn't that what happens here? We somehow detach them. A mystical idea of love, where I just love God with my journals and notebooks out in the woods, with no regard for anybody else around me, or a love for neighbor that is completely ignorant of the God that created us. And Jesus puts them together and says, do you understand? It's not either or. Do you understand the sum total of what we're saying? Do you understand that everything points to this? Do you understand that the meaning of life is to love God and love neighbor? The order also matters. Love of God is prior to love of neighbor, and I would say even establishes its possibility. If we want to define love as God defines love, we must begin with God. Not our own definition. To write our own rules and make them up as we go and then say, I'm a loving person. We begin with who is God. And once we understand who God is and the definitions that he gives, then we can turn to one another and we can begin to order this idea of loving neighbor. Love of God is prior to love of neighbor and establishes its possibility. Love is the fulfillment of the law and the telos of love. They're not disconnected. Do you want to know the meaning of life? Do you want to know God's will for your life? The will of God is seen in the law of God. Listen to David's testimony in Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Do you know the next clause? Your law is written in my heart. The will of God is understood when we see the law of God. What is God's purpose for our life? He has given us his law. Teacher, what is the great commandment? What do they all point to? What is the meaning of life? Love God, love neighbor. And the great end of God's law is love. Love for him, love for neighbor. Just as you bear God's image to bring him glory, you do this by loving him and loving neighbor. That is man's great purpose. Now, how does this encounter end? There's three encounters, but this third one ends a bit differently and even sounds a bit different in where Jesus ends up with this questioner. It's actually surprisingly different from the previous two question and answer periods. 
In contrast to Jesus telling the Sadducees that they're wrong, this man says, Jesus, you're right. Did you notice his response? When he says to him there, you are right, teacher. In contrast to Jesus telling the Pharisees that they're hypocrites, Jesus tells this man, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What is different about this man as opposed to the others two that come to Jesus in Mark 12? I think we could boil it down to this. This man agreed with Jesus instead of seeking to trap him. And this man was not trying to edit or to correct Jesus, but genuinely learn from him. Meaning, this man is not far from the kingdom of God because he sees Jesus for who he is. An entrance into the kingdom of God has everything to do with our relationship to who Jesus is. This is not the first time we've seen this phrase, the kingdom of God. It appears several instances within Mark's gospel, and I would say that the first instance is the most important. It is the most significant. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The context of this statement, Mark 1, 14 and 15, is of utmost importance because of when Jesus said it and what had just transpired in the first 13 verses. Number one, John the Baptist is pointed to by Mark as the beginning of the gospel that if you want to know good news, you need to know that God promised he would send someone who would prepare the way for this Messiah And John showed up proclaiming a baptism of repentance. John is the forerunner to Jesus, meaning this Jesus has been promised in the Old Testament. This isn't anything new that was just made up. This is a promise that God has been working to bring about for many years. After John the Baptist, what Mark says is that Jesus was anointed with the Spirit at his baptism. A voice from heaven spoke and he was given the approval of his heavenly Father. Immediately after that, Jesus is driven into the wilderness where he is tempted, tried, and remains steadfast under trial. Meaning, the kingdom of God has everything to do with seeing Jesus as he is. That he is the second Adam. That he is the promised rescuer that has been foretold in the prophets. That he is the one anointed as the servant in Isaiah to come and to carry out God's mission. He is the one who's tested and tried and actually remained faithful, unlike Adam who was tested and tried and failed. We come to the kingdom of God when we see Jesus for who he is. And instead of like Adam bringing this curse upon humanity, this Christ comes and he brings the gift of righteousness. Paul is picking up on this in Romans 5. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam... Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Good news is what Mark says. Christ has come. He's been tested. He's been examined. And he's been proven faithful. He is the one without blemish. And he stands, Mark says, in the place of sinners. His righteous life in the stead of unrighteousness. He stands before the law and says, I've fulfilled all its demands. In the faithfulness of Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, that is where sinners find comfort in who Christ is and what he's accomplished. And so what Mark does here is that he shows us the person of Christ, this Jesus. He is the answer to our greatest need and the resolution to that great tension that we all feel. And I hope in reading through this passage, you felt some of that tension. The questions that are asked of Jesus are legitimate questions. And the answers that he gives are authoritative. When he talks about bearing God's image and giving to God what he is owed. When he talks about loving God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength and neighbor as self. That's the right answer. But yet if we're honest with ourselves and we examine our lives, there is a tension, isn't there? My life is not my own but exists to glorify God and yet I know my life. The meaning of life is to love God with my all and love my neighbor as myself. I know my loves. There's a bit of tension here. The gospel of Mark drives right at that tension and says, yes, don't look away from that reality. Because that is exactly the point. Who is the one that God has provided in the face of that tension? It is his son. And so the one who says, okay, I'm made to reflect God's image to bring him glory. Have you seen my life? It's a mess. And the gospel of Mark rises up and says, look to Christ. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, who is the express image of the Father. He stands as the perfect sacrifice to pay the debts of his people. He satisfies the law's demands, and he represents his people perfectly before the Father. The same person would say, but what about this great tension of truly loving God with my all, or even attempting to love my neighbor as myself? Mark rises up and says the same thing. Look to Christ. Not only has he satisfied these demands in our place, what does he do? He conforms his people unto his image, transforming us to love what he loves perfectly unto ultimately our resurrected bodies. God in the flesh for his people to conform his people to that image so that God might receive the glory. The very tension that we are to feel is to drive us towards the reality of looking to Christ and seeing him as God's provision for that great disconnect in our lives. It is impossible to love God with your all. It is required that you do. Do not ever separate those realities. 
if you try and separate them, there's no need for Christ. The reality of both remains true. You're created in God's image. Give him what he is owed. It's impossible to give him what he's owed in the midst of a broken life ruined by sin. Christ meets us in the realities of both of those disconnects and says he is the image of God in the flesh. And he is the one who fully satisfies the delight of the Father, loving him with his all to the point of death, so that his people can do the same. So that we can begin to know what it is to love him with our all, to love our neighbor as ourself. And he's conforming us to that image so that we will do so for all eternity to his glory by his grace and power. The Gospel of Mark is most certainly good news, not only for sins forgiven, but for the hope of what God creates within his people. The very hope of what he's doing now in his church, the new creation that he's gathering to himself, and the anticipation of what we will experience for all eternity with him. Let's look to him now, placing our trust in him, giving him thanks for his wonderful provision. Father, how thankful we are that you are the lamb who's without blemish, the perfect sacrifice, and that you are the lamb that's been proven, poked, questioned, even attempted to be trapped and discredited, and yet you prove yourself to be exactly who you are, God with us, God in the flesh. Thank you that you have come and that you have proven yourself to be the one who is sufficient to stand the test and to stand in place of your people, your sinless life, your sacrificial death, your triumphal resurrection. Lord, we need all of it. We pray that you would continue to conform us to the image of your son and give us the great hope, even in the midst of the great disconnect of what we see in our lives. We pray that the gospel of grace would continue to meet us where we are, that we would know the great joy of where sin abounds, that grace abounds all the more, and where the image of you is marred and broken and shattered, that it is by your grace that you restore that image, and we long for that day when it is put together, the final peace and resurrected bodies, living content and unto your glory in perfect goodness and perfect righteousness. Lord, we long for that day, so we pray that you would be the shield about us, the lifter of our heads. Remind us of the great hope of heaven and the day that awaits us, especially in the midst of difficult days and trial. We pray that you would bear us up and keep us, especially in the midst of failure and sin and ruin. Lord, we pray that all of this good news that's proclaimed to us here in Mark's gospel would bear much fruit in our lives, we pray. Amen. Church, we come to the table this morning assured and comforted by the good news of the gospel, specifically that our Lord Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice that we need. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices in the old covenant, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for at all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after the saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember the sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the veil of his flesh, and since we have a great high priest who's over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus Christ, the sufficient sacrifice offered once for all, sufficient enough that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, reminding us, and the therefore of all of the reasoning of this is, let us draw near. We come to this table with assurance, not of our own lives, and our own image bearing, and our own efforts, or our own love for God and neighbor, but we come on the assurance of the sacrifice that has been shed for us. We eat and we drink, assured of what these elements testify of, forgiveness of sins, because of the one who actually accomplished it, our Lord Jesus. What we're saying is, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That is essentially what we confess each time we eat and we drink. This is the great confession and the great comfort of God's people. That's why we remind ourselves that this meal is really our bond and our pledge that reminds us of this great reality, that we are God's people, that we belong to him. And in belonging to him, we belong to one another. And so we remind ourselves again that along with the members of Veritas Church, if you're here among us visiting, if you're a member of another church that preaches this same gospel, that looks to this same Jesus as the sufficient sacrifice, you've placed your hope in him, you've been baptized upon your profession of faith, and would you please eat and drink with us? If that's not true of you, or if you're still questioning or working through how this all works out as far as this Jesus for this sin, for that sacrifice, please let these elements just pass to the to the person next to you. And at the same time, do two things. Consider the promise that you've just heard about who Jesus is, and then afterwards, find myself or another person and say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I want to know more. As we consider and prepare ourselves coming before the Lord's table, you can remain seated where you're at and we'll pass the bread and the cup out to you, but let's prepare ourselves by singing this hymn found on page 11. It reminds us of the great mercy that we have in Christ.